Have you ever needed to really pull back to what really mattered? I think back to my time when I thought about that question. I thought about a time about 10 years ago um, in which I actually needed to pull back. At that time, I was reeling from um, starting a church plant only to have to see the doors closed five years later. And I remember a time in, in that, that was the time in which I was struggling with my own heart and my own identity and just asking, who am I? Is this what I'm called to do as a pastor? Where am I going with this? Is this just, just a job? Is this just something that you know, I'm being paid to do? Or is this is what God's calling is of me? And I think I was just going just through a lot of turbulence in that time. And um, it was really great because the Lord always works in providence. You know, when we go through issues and struggles, his greatest problems is, as I was reminded by my brother Chris Block, is, is a time for God wants to show his, his glory in the midst of our greatest problems. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And as I was kind of going through the peak of my depression and struggling through what I was struggling through, I just, I was, uh, I was able to talk with a brother that I did not even know. He lived in the Bay Area and I was connected with them through one of my professors. And I asked him, after I shared this pity sob story of what happened to me, I asked him what, I, what he thought. And he was like, okay. You really want to know what I, what I think? So since you asked me, and almost implying like I didn't want to hear from him like what he wanted to tell me, but that's where he just waylaid it into me about how suffering is, is, is a use, is a tool for God to sharpen me and that one day I will look back at this time and I will realize that this was not God's uh, anger or God's um, separation from me, but this was God molding me and shaping me to be the God who he has called me to be. And one day you'll be thanking God for the suffering, you will have so much gratitude for what has happened to you. And he was just, he was just going at me. And I remember I was so convicted after I hung up the phone. Um, I, I, I really literally ran to my room and I, on the way I passed by Christine and, and I said, I need to pray <laughs> and repent. <laughs> and that was a time in which I think the Lord used it to reaffirm what God, he's always using broken vessels and he's always using broken people for his purposes. But it's to showcase that he is a powerful, powerful and mighty God. And that's when the Lord led us um, eventually to Houston. And that's the reason, probably why, one of the reasons why, I don't know if I ha didn't have that conversation, I'd be standing here right now, moving from California to Houston. Have you ever been at a crossroads in which you have just been at a place where you know you need to move, where you know at that point, that decision, that calling, your marriage, your family is on the rocks and you know that you are literally at the crossroads, that you really know that this is, there's something going on. We have to come to the crossroads in order to come to find out who we really are and ultimately to find out who Christ really is. And I think in this same way, Jesus wants to cut through the fluff of, of all the popular opinions of who Jesus was, and he wanted to take his disciples to come to grips of who he was. And so let's look at 
Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20, and he had the elephant in the room of who was Jesus? What, we, what did he come here to accomplish? What was his mission? And you might have some similar questions. Maybe your friend, maybe your friend brought you to church and you do not even know what and why you're even sitting here in this moment. Maybe for you, Jesus Christ is just a name, an expletive that you use when you stub your toe or do something wrong. Or maybe to you, Jesus Christ is just a story out of the storybooks. And I wanna ask you, if you are at the crossroads at this time, I wanna plead with you. If that's you, know that you are the image and reflected in the image of God. God's created you, he's formed you, he has hand-stamped his image upon you. And if you have no lesser purpose to exist other than existing for the one who's created the hands and the feet that you use to hold your Bibles or your phones right now. And I wanna encourage you that he is the one who's formed you, he's the one who's created you. Um, just like my son, he was, um, my son who's turning five months old tomorrow, um, we put him in front of the mirror um, just as I was leaving for church. And um, it was so cute because he was looking at himself. And you know, at that, at that point, four months, five months, he's able to like, you know, see himself and actually kind of recognize. And he was just breaking out in smiles and cooing and, and cackling and all that kind of stuff. But when you look in the mirror, you don't just see you. You are literally the spitting image of our God. And I just want to say, if that's you, I just want to say that there's a special word for you today. And I pray that you would see who Christ is and it would just shape everything in your life. So let's look and let's dive into the text today. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus is taking his, 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 his peoples, his 11 uh, disciples that have been following him. There was a rabbi and disciple kind of relationship in which they followed Jesus. They took upon not only his teachings, but they took upon his very life. And so they walked toe to toe with Jesus in their heat and sweat. I know it's kind of hot right now um, in this room. And, uh, but, you know, they, they, they walked um, with Jesus 24-7. And it was in this time where they knew that popular opinion was, was kind of saying that was complimentary toward Jesus. People, Jesus was popular at the time, and people were saying that Jesus was like Elijah, who was the, the prophet to come, um, who would come before the promised Messiah or the promised rescuer, um, as we see in the Old Testament scriptures. That's what the Jewish people were waiting for. They had this messianic expectation. Um, of this Jewish um, deliverer and savior who would not only rescue them from um, suffering and the darkness, but they would rescue them from their, the hands of their enemies. And so, but they, they were complimentary to Jesus, but they thought Jesus was like a number two. They thought like he was the 1.0, but you know, he was, the, he was just the forerunner to the 2.0 Messiah. And that's what they see here um, in, in, in saying that some say is John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jeremiah was also another uh, prophet back in the Old Testament times, in which um, had prophesied that um, that 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 Judah would receive judgment 
before they went out and got exiled because of their disobedience to God. And so Jesus wants to cut through the fluff and he wanted to get down that question and he took them away. He took them to retreat out here in Caesarea Philippi and it was about a thousand feet above sea level and it was standing right under the shadow of Mount Hermon. And in the cliff of that mountain was inscribed all the tribal deities, all uh, the, the false or the gods of that time, the Canaanite gods and the deities and all the tribal things. This place was a place, um, historically, was a place of worship. And Jesus was a fitting place for him to just call out his disciples and call out the elephant in the room and for them to really um, understand and declare once and for all the crossroads, who he was. And so now he points at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus goes and cuts through the fluff and now he asks them the pointed question, well, who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm just a 1.0? Do you think do you think I'm just a forerunner to somebody else? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesperson of the disciples, the one who uh, usually uh, speaks first and thinks later, at this time was completely right. He said he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And you might think to yourself, why the living God? That's kind of Strange, you would think that God is living. But remember, think about the shadows of where they stood. They stood in the midst of a cliff that was inscribed, all of these pictures of dead deities. But Peter is saying, no, you are the Christ. You are the one who is living and not dead. You're not deaf or mute or incapable to save. You are the living God. And I worship you. And we can maybe even picture uh, out of just a sense of awe and worship that, that Peter understood that he stood before the God who has created him. And he bowed down in worship to him. Think about how this affected Peter in this place, in, in, this, in this time. This was far more than just Hey, you know, the right answer. Okay, great, you get a sticker. <laughs> or hey, great, you get a, you know, you get you get a free gift. But this was a revelation that was given to Peter by his father. We see that here where Jesus almost has like a you could just see the joy and the relief on um on Jesus' answer, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Simon, this didn't happen just because you were smart, just because you got an A, or you, got, you, got a, you majored in biblical studies, or that you have a PhD, no, this is saying that what has been given to you is literally have been, has been a gift to you. My father has just like pulled open the curtains and has showed you who I am. And this is not just a blessing here. This is not just like somebody sneezes, God bless you. Look at the text. I don't know why we constantly gloss over this, but it's, 
it's, it's this, blessed are you, Simon. In other words, blessed, it just kind of goes back to the beginning of the Gospels and the Beatitudes in the first part of the teaching of Jesus. Remember, Jesus started off with the Beatitudes and he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and blessed is not just, um, you know, you, you, you did great, but it's more of speaking to the wholeness and to the restoration of man and the world. Peter was a recipient of great blessing and the ability to understand who he is. For flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and, and I tell you, I love the, um, how first Simon Peter responds, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus is gonna go around and tell him, okay, you told me who I am, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you who you are. Simon, Peter, you are Peter. Again, just recognize the weights that Jesus Christ, he's been walking with them, but now everything that he's done up to this point um, matters only because he has correctly um, discerned by the Spirit and by revelation his given understanding of who Jesus is. And now his life will be shaped from here on out profoundly. Like Peter's life is going to just turn 360 degrees. And we do know that just literally in the next um, passage, Peter makes a dreadful mistake. And while he got the identity right, the next thing, he tries to, to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and, and uh, Jesus rebukes him. And so even people like Peter do fail and they do mess up and they don't have like days in which they're spiritually like on top and top notch and all that kind of things. But the Lord is using him and using him for his glory. Now, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on, on what this actually means. Um, a lot of people kind of guarding against the Roman Catholic um, notion that, th that Peter is the first pope um, and that um, Peter was the long line of um, papal successors or popes. Um, and we don't see anything about biblical structure or biblical government here. Um, a lot of Protestants or a lot of people in, in the church has tried to react and say that this is anything else but Peter. But, you know, I think just without, uh, just, a, a, just a dry reading here, I think we can see that he is talking about Peter. And I think the key here is understanding the wordplay. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter is kephas, which means rock. And in the Greek, it's a, it's a, mas it's a masculine um, noun. And then he says, you are Peter. And on this rock, Petra, is the, is the feminine noun of that same word, Petros, which is rock, or Kephas, which is rock. And he's just, Jesus is using a word, word play here of just speaking in that Peter would be the one of the first of many to open the doors, the doorway wide to the gospel. We know that Peter was uh, the first of those people, the first one to proclaim the identity of Jesus Christ and the first one who would enter into the kingdom based on his profession that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, Peter, if you look in Acts chapter one, all the way to 12, we see that Jesus was, uh, or that Peter was on the forefront. He'd be the first one to proclaim Jesus Christ as the son of God and the living and crucified savior to the entire world. So he was like the first person that would open up 
the doorway and the, the, the entryway to the kingdom of God. It's kind of like when you're the first person on the ride. Um, like I remember back in Disneyland, um, I got some tickets to be able to be the first one on the Indiana Jones uh, ride. I don't even know if it's still there. <laughs> um, it was like the Temple of Doom or something like that. And um, I was just so happy. And um, even waiting three hours just to get, be one of the first to get up on the, on the line. And when I got on it, it was great. It was good. It was a great ride. But me being first didn't change anything about the ride, right? It, it was the same ride. It's just that I was one of the first to be able to, to get onto it. And that's what Peter is here in terms of the gospel. He was the first among equals who would open the pathways and open the door for the gospel. Um, and, and he would open the pathways and he would be the one preaching that. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I love this because church, this is the first mention of church. Um, it's the word ecclesia, which means a gathering, literally of people within a common purpose. Um, usually in the Old Testament, it talked about Old Testament worship, and they would gather for the purposes of worshiping God. Um, but what we see here about the ecclesia or the gathering or building my church is that Jesus simply says this, I'm going to build my church. <laughs> this is not Peter's church, and this betrays everything that I think um, other doctrines assume. They over just exalt Peter, right? But they ignore the clear context is that Peter is going to be one of the first of many people who would profess Jesus Christ, enter into his kingdom, and be a part of his blood-bought people, and the church is going to be the focal centerpiece of what God's activity and God's joy in doing next in showcasing his glory to the rest of the world. And so what I want to just really bring out and draw out from this, this part of the passage is that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, Jesus, Jesus is kind of giving us a picture of, hey, are we on the, is the church on the offense here or are we on the defense here? Because usually gates, usually kind of, you're thinking, hey man, you're, you're, you're kind of hiding behind the gates and you're you know, defending against an onslaught of, a, of an enemy army coming and rushing at you. Um, what, is, what is the church? Are they on the offense um, or the defense? And I think it's, it's pretty clear, actually, that even though the gates of hell should not prevail against it, we see elsewhere in the book of Matthew, in chapter 15, chapter 16, there's a mounting hostility against Jesus Christ. There was the kingdom of Satan uh, that was pressing in against um, Jesus and his disciples. And so we just see this increasing amount of hostility and warfare. And so what we see here is that the enemy is on the offense and the enemy is trying to push against uh, the kingdom of God and the church of God. And that's where I'm just like, whoa, because when he says, I will build my church, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's speaking of that the enemy is has locked in to destroying everything of God in this world. Right now, he's trying to take your thoughts and trying to spin it to something else 
because he does not want you to be wholly surrendered and wholly in love with Jesus. Right now, there is spiritual warfare for you. Right now, there are angels fighting in heaven. Right now, there is the flesh and the enemy that is just fighting against you, trying to stop what God wants to do in your life. Right now. And yet, when Jesus says, I will build my church, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, it's saying that the power of death, the worst thing that we could possibly just think upon happening to any of these people in this room is that the powers of death will not prevail against the church. What Jesus is saying here is that not even the greatest power, the greatest power of death, the greatest enemy onslaught, even the fact that one day we will live to our last breath and we will die, not even that has ownership and will stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Amen? Amen? All right, it's getting hot up in here. Okay, it's getting hot up in here, right? Jesus is saying, my church is unstoppable. My church cannot be upset. This is not March Madness here. There is no upset in the kingdom of God because when Jesus says, I will build my church, that is a promise that is written in blood by the Savior dying on the cross, rising again, vanquishing the power of death the greatest enemy of all time, and defeating Satan. And he says, my church is unstoppable. Okay? Come on now. Can I hear an amen? Okay. That's good. We're sounding, sounding more engaged, more lively. And I want to apply that because... When we read this text, we so gloss over it. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And Jesus says here that he's undefeatable, right? He's undefeatable and that his church is undefeatable because of who he is, because of his death and his resurrection. He's saying, I will build my church and nothing, not even the powers of hell can come against that. And that's why Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom that whatever is bound on earth will also be bound on heaven, uh, bound in heaven. And whether it be loosed in earth will also be loosed in heaven. And what you want to take, take away from that is as Peter was the first one to hold the keys, the first one to enter into the kingdom by his confession and by his whole devout worship of Jesus, so also the church is given the keys and now we're called to proclaim that gospel, to live out and model that gospel, and proclaim his authority over the sick, over death itself, over the sicknesses and the addictions and the problems and the issues of this world, and because we, need, we trust and we live and we serve a risen Savior, one who is undefeatable, one who has given the keys over to his church, and now you, church, have that authority not because of yourselves, but because of the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's why we walk in, why we walk in. We believe that the Spirit of God is working today, 
He is bringing healing. He is bringing life. He's bringing peace to those who do not know him. I just want to briefly just apply that to just two um, things, Um, just this incredible and weighty truth. You know, we are shaped by our confession of who Jesus is, and Jesus has the only right then to tell what his church should look like. So Jesus' church, it should be countercultural, right? It should not look like um, the things of this world. It should not look like the things that you, uh, the gatherings that you go outside. It should not look like anything else other than what Jesus wants for his church. It's not Peter's church. It's not my church. It's not the elder's church. It's not your church. But the church is Jesus Christ and his alone. And he has the sole right of telling us what, what we see. And so that's why we've been given a national identity. We've been given um, a new identity. We've been given uh, a new spirit, a new heart, a new life. And with that, as we worship God together in this place, when we sing songs, we're singing the national anthem of the gospel, right? When we come and we gather in confession and, and the Lord's table, we are gathering because it's a foretaste of what is to come, that Jesus will one day gather his church and we will one day sit at supper with the Lord who has created us. When we worship God, when we sing songs, the songs of his, and, we, and when we come before God in his word and we receive his word, we're receiving his instructions. But not only his instructions, but we're receiving um, his love letter for us in, in modeling and looking like Jesus and who he is. Um, and so Jesus has the right to shape his church. And the second thing is in the suffering and the struggles that we're seeing in the Ukraine, um, I was just really gripped by this because um, we may look like the church of God is not advancing, but it is just losing. And, you know, we're seeing images on TV in which um, people are afraid of dying because literally the school just got bombed next door. They can't even leave their house. It seems like, where's God in all this? And what is God doing? How is he letting all, like 900 and so civilians that have been killed and maybe scores, thousands more that have been injured as of today in Ukraine? Well, I just wanted to share with you just a quick story of a a pastor who is a partner of uh, uh, our good friends by the name of Jordan and Brittany Ward, and and they partner with his church. He um, is located in Moldova, and Moldova is right next door, literally, to the Ukraine. And so over 300,000 immigrants of Ukrainian refugees are flooding in, the largest of any single country. They're going straight into Moldova. And God is using the church in that place from the border, from the north and the south. Christians are seeing that this is an opportunity in which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church should be burning brightest. And so they've set up 10 to 20 uh, stations and checkpoints in which uh, these checkpoints are giving food and giving shelter and giving hope and restoration as they're fleeing and going to safe places. And it's incredible, Pastor Eugene, he's the the name of the pastor there. It's just unspeakable about the fear and the struggles that people are facing but yet the churches are being mobilized. He just told of a church that was being mobilized and 24 hours is gonna be transformed into a hotel and into a, like a resting place. They bought 50 beds and 50 mattresses and linens and all that. And they were, uh, they've basically transformed that church into a resting spot in which they can love on these Ukrainian refugees and then to be able to send them out and hopefully even just share the good news of Jesus 
can pray over them. And that's what the church is moving in the darkest places. We can't just center on news media and social media and think that God's kingdom is being destroyed. It is advancing through the gospel of people who are living that out, even as we speak. And I just want to encourage you all today. Let's not just be content and just preaching the gospel, but let's model the gospel and let's realize that the kingdom of God is advancing, it's unstoppable, it's moving. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the power of death will not prevail. So I want you to encourage you, think about that, pray for the kingdom of God. The church is moving. It is advancing it's advancing here in Hope Church, right here, right now. The spirit of God is moving in our church. I just really want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of a people that is closed off in hardness of heart, but I want to be pursuing people to the ends of the earth and to see people being at a crossroads crossroads and see the cross of Christ and let their life be renewed and changed and transformed. Amen. So let's all stand as we, as we close. Take some time right now and as we spend some time, as we come before the Lord of his church, you might be in a state in which you've seen the church fail you. You've seen leaders fail you. You might be in a time of cynicism and doubt. But my prayer is that you not focus your eyes on people, because we're all going to fail, we're all going to sin, but that you would focus your eyes on Christ. And if you just need prayer, just to clear that out and just to even confess where you are and just to receive prayer, we want to invite you to come, guests and covenant members. And then at the same time, we want to invite you to, if you are just weary and needing strength, we just want to encourage you to come and pray. And maybe if there's some of us that really want to see the kingdom come and his will be done and that you want to pursue him and you just need prayer in that way, we just want to lift this time up to you. So in this space, Father, do whatever you want to do. Father, move God in our hearts. Father, help us to, at the very depths, just to commune with you, to hear your voice, and to know you. I pray that you would move in this place and let your spirit be alive in us as we worship, and there be some members of the prayer team that will gather on the sides, and we just want to encourage us um, as we worship uh, that you would just come and be open to what the Lord wants to do. Thank you. Let's continue to worship together.